Good afternoon and welcome. To build support for civil legal aid, we need to tell people why it matters. Uh, the genesis for this webinar came from a leadership summit attended by a lot of plan leadership and project directors and senior managers um, where we first, where Martha Bergmark first presented re the research tested mes messaging uh, research that was funded by the Public Welfare Foundation. And we thought it would be a great idea to drill this information uh, to our broader civil legal aid community. Um, I'd like to introduce our two presenters today. Martha Bergmark is the founding executive director of Voices for Civil Justice. For over four decades, Martha has been a leader in the movement to fulfill America's promise of justice for all. During her tenure as its founding president, the, Miss she was, uh, the Mississippi Center for Justice became an influential force for progressive change in scoring significant policy and litigation wins. She continues to serve the Mississippi Center for Justice as a board member and senior counsel. Previously, she ser also served as executive vice president and president of the Legal Services Corporation, administering federal funding to civil legal aid organizations nationwide, and is the senior vice president for National Legal Aid and Defender Association. She began her career as a civil rights attorney and legal aid lawyer in her home state of Mississippi. Martha is truly committed to justice for all. Our other presenter is Caitlin Brown, who is the Communications Director for Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, which we commonly refer to as CLS. In addition to facilitating CLS's media contacts, Caitlin Min maintains and develops the agency's social media, website, publications, and external communications, and serves as co-chair of CLS's data committee. Caitlin began working at CLS in 2012 and previously worked at uh, WETA-TV and 90.9 FM in Washington, D.C. Um, Martha, I'm going to turn the presentation over to you. Thanks, Christine, and hi, everybody. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity to be in Pennsylvania this afternoon, even while sitting at my desk here in uh, at Shutdown Central in Washington. Uh, we're going to cover three things uh, this afternoon in the next hour. Uh, first, there will be uh, a bit about Voices for Civil Justice, our free services and resources to you and your new Pennsylvania Voices. Uh, second, and this will be the bulk of my time, I'll present the key findings of our latest public opinion research about civil legal aid and uh, civil justice reform. And then finally, promptly at the 345 mark, uh, I'll turn it over to Caitlin uh, to, uh, to do a presentation about best practices and ethical considerations. So first, about voices. Um, you know, there are many ways that, that one could approach our mission at Voices, that is to, to raise awareness of uh, what civil legal aid is, why it matters, uh, why we're not yet fulfilling our, how it is we're not yet fulfilling our promise of justice for all. Uh, but our uh, tactic of choice is media. So one way that we work is to garner national media and track coverage of civil legal aid um, and we've been doing that for about the last five years. We get media coverage primarily in national media outlets that 
seek to highlight the need for civil justice reform and the importance of civil legal aid. In the five years we've been at this, we've had a hand in more than 450 news stories and op-eds in well over 100 media outlets. Actually, we're close to 200 media outlets by now. That's an average of about two pieces per week in traditional outlets like the New York Times to online outlets like Vice to broadcast outlets like NPR. And our goal is to drive a steady drumbeat of media coverage about what legal aid is, why it matters, and with your help, we are, uh, we're doing that. We also track the coverage. Uh, this is a screenshot from our website uh, because we want to encourage you to use this tool. It's a searchable database um, in which we post not just the pieces that we have a hand in, but we do tracking daily and we curate the list. We don't just post everything we see, we, we grade it. And uh, so the pieces that meet our sort of threshold for uh, the kind of messaging and um, awareness raising that we like to see uh, go into this database. So you can search it by your state, by your issue area, uh, type of outlet, your own name, your program's name. Uh, and we find that our network members are, find this to be a really useful uh, source for ideas to push out on your social media channels and for ideas for stories and op-eds that you might want to pitch locally. Um, now, as some of you know, our, the way we do this is with our, the help of our Justice Voices Network, uh, and our role there is to provide you the support and training and coaching and so forth that you need to really up your game uh, with communications and media. We now have more than 1,500 people uh, in our network from all 50 states, and uh, I'm going to make a strong pitch for you to be one of those people before this uh, afternoon is over um, to be part of what, what we're doing. And again, these are just a couple of screenshots from our website uh, that indicate some of the tools and resources we have uh, on the website uh, for you. So I encourage you to, to check that out. So how do we drum, generate this drumbeat of coverage? Well, there are sort of two principal ways. One is we scan what's going on. We are, the, we are a staff of three here in Washington. We have a contract with a, a, a communications firm, Berlin Rosen, based in New York and Washington. Uh, and we scan the existing media landscape to look for issues that we know are being covered uh, that legal aid programs are doing work in, but may, that may not be part of the story yet. So, and we call that newsjacking to try to get ourselves and our legal aid issues into the story. Um, here is a, an example of, um, of a piece that was uh, an op-ed in the New York Times uh, by now about three, uh, almost three years ago. Uh, and we use this example because it's one where um, we, it, was, it is a newsjacking example. Lead poisoning was in the news around the Flint, uh, Michigan water crisis that was garnering national attention. We knew that legal aid lawyers across the country are, were working on various kinds of lead uh, poisoning issues and put a notice out to our network. We connected with Emily Benfer, who's a, a headed of a, a medical legal partnership in Chicago, and she was working on trying to get HUD to change a regulation that would uh, better protect uh, children and families living in subsidized housing. Uh, we helped her write and place this op-ed, uh, and sure enough, within a few months later, 
uh, HUD changed its policy to do exactly what Emily was calling for. So um, we were delighted to be part of the effort to make that happen. Um, sometimes, so newsjacking is often the posture that we're in. It's, it, we're happier when we get to be the center of the story. Um, and that actually happened to us when uh, President Trump came into office and uh, almost immediately called for uh, ending funding for the Legal Services Corporation. At that point, legal services or legal aid was the story. Um, and we were ready to take advantage of that. Here's a screenshot of, this is a page one uh, New York Times uh, story, uh, for, you know, even including a either a pony or a miniature horse, we're not sure which, there's some dispute about uh, what this animal is, but nevertheless, a very cute animal to have with our story in what we believe is the first um, mention of legal aid on, in, on page one of the New York Times. So we were we we were part of about half of the very significant volume of positive coverage that we saw around the country. And we also, our messaging and uh, effort to help you get your stories into local outlets uh, made for a very large uh, bump in coverage about civil legal aid in throughout much of 2017. But what we noticed was after that, you know, the news cycle passed, um, you know, the spike happened. But we've, we've noticed that there's been a continuing bump in coverage, uh, we think in part because of the, you know, the enthusiasm that was generated among our network members for what was possible about getting the story into, um, into the media. I wanted to mention a couple, couple of examples as well as, of what's uh, come from Pennsylvania. We've worked with your uh, advocates already over time. This, uh, this Pittsburgh Post-Gazette piece that Dick Thornburg um, signed on to, but that we helped author along with Christine and others uh, there in Pennsylvania, we're, we were able, that, that happened at a time where we were, you know, the, your local advocates were promoting um, state funding for legal aid, but it just happened to coincide as it turned out with the uh, the national uh, concern about legal aid funding, and we were able to convert this into a piece that went out on Fox opinion, uh, Fox News uh, opinion uh, column. Uh, we converted it for, uh, for part of the coverage that covered uh, legal aid in general. Um, more, a couple of more recent examples. This is just from last fall in November. Um, worked with your uh, advocates in Philly when the report came out um, finding that, you know, it would make sense for the Philadelphia eviction crisis to be addressed with more help from uh, legal representation in eviction cases. So here's an example of that. Um, and here's another New York Times uh, example that we uh, connected uh, advocates at community legal services with, um, with the New York Times. So we're, we see our effort as one that is really dependent on your local advocacy, your local involvement to help us uh, get that story out. And that leads me to the final way I want to mention that Voices works, and that is this. We support statewide approaches to communications and media. Um, we're excited that we have been able to generate this drumbeat of coverage nationally. 
Uh, but imagine the impact we could have if in several states there were state versions of voices to generate drumbeats of coverage in each of your state and local media outlets. That would be a far more powerful way to get the story out. So I, I do speak for all of us at Voices when I tell you that we are delighted that Pennsylvania uh, is in the vanguard of states to embrace this vision. And along with Virginia and Washington State, um, you have launched a state counterpoint to, counterpart to Voices national role as a communications hub. We'd like to see other states uh, follow your lead. Um, and here you are in the lead. Uh, Christine, are you there to talk a, a minute about this or do you want to do that at the end? I can start now. I just have a quick sentence. Um, yeah. you know, so this year, Plan and our affiliated programs and broader partners in the public interest community will launch this new initiative, Pennsylvania Voices. And its key functions will be including recruiting participation of all plan programs and, and, and the broader public interest community. By, and providing training and support in, in coordination with the VOICES staff and the VOICES for Civil Justice um, to advocates and spokespeople um, for civil legal aid will track media coverage and help guide media, you know, media placement. Um, but in terms of the media outreach, we need you. We need our advocates and we need our staffing at the legal aid programs to sort of, uh, you know, rely on your relationships, your content, your good work. So that is sort of Pennsylvania Voices in a nutshell. We're planning a training for the spring um, and we'll be having part of uh, communications and media advocacy as part of our statewide and uh, regional trainings um, as interest and need uh, warrants. So this is your action step for today, and that is uh, please join the Justice Voices Network. Uh, this is the first, this makes you a part of our uh, discussion group. Uh, we will be working very closely with Christine uh, to make sure that we're really focusing on building the Pennsylvania Voices Network as part of that network. So if you've got your phone handy and can quickly enter this, this will take you just a few seconds to uh, become part of our network right this minute. We do not overburden you with um, emails. You'll, you'll get one or two emails a week from us, uh, but this will be the very best way to see how we work. We'll, we'll send you notices when we have a reporter looking for a particular kind of a story. We'll um, alert you to news conversations that are happening that we think uh, you could be a part of if you have a story to go with it. Uh, if you've got an idea for an op-ed, we hope we hear from you. So that's really, this is really the very best way to um, to get to know us and to, to work with us. So please, please sign up before the end of the call. And we'll remind you again before we're done. Now, as we move into the messaging research, I wanna say that this is one of the key resources that we offer to you at Voices. Uh, if we really want, you know, all 10,000 legal aid lawyers in America singing from the same song sheet uh, and making the case for why we deserve more uh, public and private support, then we need to be uh, giving people the tools they need to do it. But I want to start uh, this presentation, the research, with this um, uh, video clip 
uh, short video clip, and it's from the uh, from the Science March, uh, but it has relevance to us, we think, and we'll start there. So let's hear it. Um, 
So we're going to cover some of those key findings uh, today. But if this stuff, you know, kind of turns you on, I strongly encourage you to take a look at the messaging research section on our website for a deeper dive into this project and the findings. And you can actually listen to an audio of Celinda and Anat presenting the research uh, when it's when it it. something to do over your tuna fish sandwich at your desk one day. Now the research looks at public perceptions of civil legal aid and the civil justice system, as well as what messages resonate most with audiences and build support for our cause. Uh, polls like this are conducted around a question, you know, the, a, a, we pose a question that they need to indicate their support for or not. And the question of, for this poll was, do you or do you not support increasing state funding to build a civil justice system that allows all people who need it effective assistance for their civil legal problems? So do you support state funding, more state funding for a, a more accessible civil justice system? And in conducting the poll, one of the things that we're seeking to do is to sort out the respondents uh, by whether they support this or not. So the respondents really sort themselves into uh, categories based on their answers to our poll. And here are the categories that they fall into. We surveyed, did an online survey of 800 likely no November 2018 voters. Um, we also sampled activists and I'll talk about them in a minute within our networks. Um, but of the 800 likely voters, they sorted themselves based on this basic polling question into three categories. The base, 40%, uh, um, were people who strongly support increasing state funding to build a civil justice system that allows all people who need it effective assistance for their civil legal program, pro problems. That's a terrific place to start. You know, in a sort of a sample poll like this, you might expect maybe no more for a social uh, issue of this sort, you might expect, you know, 20 or 25% to be in your base. So this is a good, strong number of people who start out receptive to us. Great place to start. These folks disagree with the idea that more funding for civil legal aid will contribute to more frivolous lawsuits. They are, ex they are extremely su strongly supportive for, of the concepts of equal justice under law and justice for all as a right for all Americans. And they do tend to be mostly Democrats. Then there's the opposition, and that's 24% of our sample. And they are largely opposed to or undecided about whether their state should increase funding for a more accessible civil justice system. They agree that it is becoming more common for Americans to threaten legal action when things go wrong and that free legal aid will only contribute to that problem. They believe that states would be better off investing resources in other areas like infrastructure, for example, uh, than increasing funding for civil legal aid. And these folks tend to be white, Republican, and college educated. Finally, there are, and again, 24% of the sample, that's about average. That's, you know, uh, it's not, it's about average. So we're, we're not dealing with a, a, you know, groundswell of opposition, but it, those are the folks we're, you know, not going to get.
the other important, the important group, so the important groups are the base and the persuadables. The persuadables were 36% of our sample, and they support increasing state funding for, to build a more accessible, accessible civil justice system, though with much less intensity than the base. They might say they support rather than that they strongly support. They also agree with the opposition argument that funds for civil legal aid might be spent better uh, elsewhere. And this is the point at which Celinda likes to remind us that Americans have no problem holding two contradictory beliefs at the same time, but they deeply resent it when you point it out to them. Um, these folks tend to be younger, uh, slightly less white, more Southern, more college educated. And in, a, in thinking about you know, taking action on this research, our job is really to motivate the base. They're already with us, but they need to be given more, you know, encouragement and, and opportunity to step up and do something about uh, what they believe. The persuadables are open to our arguments. We need to reinforce that and bring them along. And as Celinda likes to tell us, we don't even want the opposition at our birthday party. They're, they're not going to support us. We don't need to be tailoring uh, our arguments to them. So let's talk for a minute about these activists. These folks are you. You know, last summer, uh, or in the summer of 17, our, uh, we created a mailing list, an email list of about 3,000 legal aid and pro bono lawyers, access to justice commission members, uh, IOLTA personnel, Equal Justice Works fellows, uh, former and current, court reform advocates and uh, all the members of our Justice Voices Network. And we got responses from these 278 um, activists. These folks strongly support increasing state funding to build a more accessible civil justice system. No surprise there. Uh, and there's near universal agreement among them with all of the arguments uh, excuse me, there's near universal disagreement with all of the arguments advanced by the opposition. And this group tended to be overwhelmingly white, female, democratic, and college educated. This group really is our choir. So these are the folks who are already uh, with us, motivated to act, but need the tools uh, and the messaging and so forth to, um, to do more of it and do it more loudly. So um, that's you. Um, so let's recap quickly the findings of our prior research, and this is the bad news. The legal aid is a largely invisible issue for the American public. But there is also good news, and that's this, that while most people have little awareness, uh, when they're educated on the topic, they are very supportive. Martha, if, if I, excuse me, if I could interrupt quick. I am going to launch the first poll. If you are an attorney who would like to request CLE credits for your participation in this webinar, please answer the question now on your screen. And thank you, Martha. Can I go ahead? Yes, okay. you're, you're okay. good. All right, good. Um, now voters embrace a broad definition of civil legal aid. And what do we mean by that? Uh, the services, that that, that folks were very enthused about include our most traditional one, legal help and representation, but they also were very receptive to the idea of self-help centers and other court-based services, 
free legal clinics and pro bono assistance, access to online information and forms. All of that they deemed uh, as you know appropriate parts of civil legal aid. Voters see lack of money as the impediment to having access to the civil justice system. So guess what? Voters get it. That's uh, good to know. Now, another significant impediment uh, is lack of knowledge. This came out uh, really as strongly as lack of money. And this is the one we need to be paying attention to. We know about the lack of money. We don't have any trouble making the case for that. We have been less sensitive to needing to... Um, educate folks about knowing when a person needs legal help and where to get it and what what possible solutions there are coming out of that. So now let's turn to the highlights of our new research. Voters believe that low-income individuals, especially those living in rural areas and people struggling to make ends meet, face the most difficulty in obtaining legal help. Again, voters get it. This is good to know that uh, we're all on the same page there. And voters want civil justice reform. In fact, half of voters say it, that the system needs to be, quote, completely rebuilt or undergo fundamental changes. Now, Celinda issues a caveat here that Americans in general are inclined to support change. They think things can be improved. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not on, there's not a revolutionary force uh, brewing here, but, but voters are very receptive to the idea of reform. Overwhelming majorities believe it's important to ensure that everyone has access to the civil justice system. And this is true whether you frame it as legal representation or as legal help. Help is a stronger and more familiar word than assistance, uh, which also carries that disfavored welfare connotation. And messages anchored in core values, you know, resonated uh, strongly with voters. Uh, me that, that's always true. Messages, messages anchored in core values are where we want to be. And here are the values that really tested most strongly in our 2017 research. Equal justice under the law is a right, not a privilege. Justice for all is a right, not a privilege. You're welcome to use either of those uh, phrases, uh, but please use them and use them uh, often and loudly. Uh, and I say that because of this, uh, this showing here, 82% of voters agree uh, that equal justice under the law is a right, not a privilege. That is a really a values level of support. I also want to show you this slide from the research, uh, primarily because you'll see, um, you know, so very, again, very high percentage, 84% of voters believe it's important for our democracy to ensure everyone has access and we're especially excited about that dark blue box over on the left hand uh, on the bottom there that 48% thought very extremely or very important to do so. So, so really fully half of our survey respondents uh, strongly hold to this belief. Voters support a wide range of services to enable everyone to get access to the information and assistance they need when they need it and in a form they can use. Now, what do we mean by a wide range of services? Well, voters overwhelmingly support the most traditional and familiar form of service, that's uh, namely having a lawyer, so uh, that gets strong support. But they also support a wide range of other services that can enhance access. We are on strong grounds 
uh, when we use examples and do things like training judges to ask questions in plain and understandable language so people without lawyers can have their cases heard, developing more affordable payment systems like co-payments or sliding fees so uh, that working and middle-class people can get the legal help they need, um, and reducing the amount of paperwork and information it takes to start or defend a civil lawsuit. So, you know, simplification and streamlining, providing access to information through technology like plain language, online forms, uh, websites, and so forth. So all of those services are strongly, uh, have strong uh, receptivity for voters. Now, strong majorities support increasing state funding. So this is, again, this was the fundamental question of the survey. The big surprise here was that the, their support is not very tax sensitive. Normally, when you drop the tax word in there, you can expect support percentage to drop. So half of our uh, respondents were asked this without mention of the word taxes, and the other half were asked to say, would you support raising taxes to support uh, increasing funding. And interestingly, 81% provided support if you don't mention the tax word, and still 78% supported it if you did. So that is a, that's a surprising lack of tax sensitivity about this and a, and a very strong showing of support. Now, so that strong level of support's great, uh, but our task is to really build urgency uh, and awareness. People, are, this is not first of mind uh, for people when they list the problems that need to be solved in the world. And that's where our cognitive linguist uh, contributions uh, come into play. And she, Anat, uh, urges us to use language that's rooted in real life experiences uh, that your audience can relate to, uh, that that's gonna engage them and be more persuasive. Um, and a key point here is that we really need to be explicit about framing the issues and problems that legal aid addresses as legal in nature. We, we find that kind of hard to do because it seems so obvious to us, and yet it's not. One of the most consistent findings in each phase of our research is that Americans just have little understanding about the kinds of cases that the civil justice system addresses, they even have little understanding of what life problems uh, actually have have legal um, uh, a legal frame to them. Uh, that's consistent with Rebecca Sandifer's research that indicates that one of the most common reasons people don't seek help for their civil legal needs is that they don't necessarily think of their problems as legal. Uh, so to address this challenge, Anat recommends that we really bring the courtroom into the frame. Uh, courtrooms have a prominent place on television, but in talking about legal aid, we often sort of push them to the background. But by using terms like legal aid lawyer, phrases like having your day in court and appearing before a judge, we activate this familiar frame and help our audience see, for example, that a dispute with a landlord or getting hounded by a bill collector is actually a legal problem with a potential legal solution. Now people respond to solutions. They, you know, they really don't want more problems. We've got enough of those. So we're going to, uh, that's even more true today than ever before. Uh, we, people just feel like they have enough to worry about. Um, so we need to really, as soon as we start talking about this problem, we need to pivot very quickly to 
the solutions that we have for it. And luckily, legal aid is part of the solution. So we have a built-in uh, solution to, to suggest. Now this image, uh, in a, if we were doing this live, I would ask you to please guess, uh, you know, what this image is trying to represent. Um, and instead of being able to just ask for volunteers, I'm just going to tell you that it's intended to represent the justice gap. That's become a very popular term within our community uh, to describe uh, the crisis in the civil justice system around access. But I want to suggest strongly to you that there is more harm than good in using this term. We need to just strike it out of our uh, lexicon. The gap metaphor is popular, but it has failed in every domain where it's been tested, including healthcare access, educational achievement, income, and now justice. And the problem is that the word gap says that there's a difference, but it really offers no origin story about how or why it came to be. And when we offer people no origin story, they will fill one in for themselves. And generally, they default all too readily to blaming individuals rather than system problems. So if a person doesn't pay their uh, rent on time, they're likely to blame that person as opposed to seeing uh, you know, eviction court as also having uh, creating barriers that need to be um, need to be fixed or corrected. Now, our 2017 survey concluded with what's called dial testing. Uh, participants were asked to listen to some statements in support of increasing state funding for civil legal aid. They were asked to react in real time by dialing up or down according to whether their reaction to what they were hearing was positive or negative. And I want to play a couple of these for you. We have time, I think, for two of these. Uh, they're each about a minute long, and you'll hear the narrator uh, read the argue, you know, the, the uh, message that is stated um, there. And then you're going to see graph lines come onto the screen uh, with for our base, our opposition, and our persuadables. You'll see that uh, our base, not surprisingly, is is most um, receptive and excited about the message, the opposition's going to fall away a bit, and we'll, we'll talk about why once you've listened to the message. This was our top testing message, and after you listen to, to it, I'll, I'll tell you why our pollsters think that's so. Whether it's a wrongful foreclosure or eviction, debt collection by a predatory lender, or a child custody hearing, finding yourself in court can be terrifying. Every document is fine print legal jargon that might as well be a foreign language. In response, one city launched a court navigators program, which trains specialists to provide simplified legal help. Through one-on-one -on -one support, navigators help people access information, know their rights, understand what's happening, and file papers correctly. They arrange for available services, including interpreters if necessary, and explain what to expect in the courtroom, providing real support. Navigators are allowed to accompany people into the courtroom and may respond to factual questions the judge directs to them. 
By expanding the legal assistance available, this approach is already producing significantly faster and better results, and at a savings. States and cities should follow this lead, ensuring greater access to justice for all. Okay, this one, and I'm going to see if I can show you one other thing here. Um, this this message was successful it, or is successful because it's really rooted in lived experience and emotion. Um, it provides a tangible solution quite quickly. The court navigator program is just one such possibility, but weaving in the solution while also talking about the problems is a successful way to make an argument. It ends with a clear uh, call to action. Now it's, uh, What's what's not as strong about it is that there's some downturn in support with the reference to interpreters. I don't know if you noticed uh, that this was uh, less popular in our polling as well. And it has a slower takeoff than our pollsters would like to see. They really want to see a message that grabs people uh, right at the outset. This was a little slower to uh, slower to build here. Um, they also like to see the opposition actually peel away. They would they would be fine having the opposition, you know, drop down into the negative there, uh, because we're not if we're not alienating our opposition because we know they're opposed. We're not really making an argument. We're not. We we need to not get away from being sort of afraid of. Uh, really making a case that we know is appealing to our base and to our persuadables, uh, even though it may it may somewhat alienate our opposition. So let's uh, now listen to the second one of these. This is our second highest testing uh, message. It's a populist message, you'll see, and our pollsters were very keen on making sure that we included such a a message to, that we tested such a message because of what's going on in the conversation today. Uh, we were kind of skeptical about it, but sure enough, this turned out to be our second highest testing message. Civil legal aid lawyers help ordinary people get a fair chance against big corporations, institutions, even the government that have armies of lawyers at their command. Yet some powerful politicians are only too happy to gut funding for civil legal aid. Too many times people are forced to live with their rights trampled and their economic livelihoods destroyed because they cannot afford legal advice and help. For decades, legal aid groups have been a driving force, making meaningful change in millions of Americans' lives. But there's not enough help to go around. Now the same Americans are shut out of the justice system, including seniors, people with disabilities, veterans, and regular working families. It's time we level the playing field and ensure all Americans, no matter how much or how little money you have, have equal justice under the law. So in this one, uh, we liked the fact that it provided a clear storyline with storyline with sort of an origin of the problem with heroes and its effects on ordinary people. 
The persuadables responded very positively to positioning legal aid providers as heroes. Um, there's strong sort of values-based uh, close with leveling the playing field and equal justice. The opposition dialed down fairly quickly. Now, downside here is that there was a lot of negative stuff in there, you know, and people were sort of going down after that first initial positive reaction. Not so much because they disliked the argument, but that what they were hearing was not very happy. So um, that's okay, but you, it makes it a little hard to interpret sometimes some of these dial-ins. So with that, that gives you an idea. If you want to listen to all 10 or so of our messages, you can do that on our website. And my uh, time is up. So I want to turn over quickly to... Um, In our civil to Caitlin and but giving you this last opportunity to join our network uh, and then I'm going to stop sharing. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be part of your afternoon. Thank you, Martha. Um, I'm going to launch the second and last poll for the CLE credits. Attorneys requesting one substantive credit for your participation in this webinar. Um, please respond now. And now it's to you, Caitlin. Great. Um, give me one second to share my screen. Is this working for you guys? Are you seeing my? Yes. Yes. Great. Okay. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, and we're going to talk about client storytelling. Um, because we know from research that client storytelling can have a whole lot of different outcomes that are really great. Um, it can help with policy changes. It can help with fundraising. I think that's you know a huge part of it. Um, it can change people's minds about things. And so what we want to do today is talk very, very briefly about how you can do this in an ethical manner so that you can protect your client while you're doing this. Um, so some of the benefits really quickly um, it can help people understand the issue and take action. So, you know, if you are doing anything with like the state legislature and you want people to make phone calls, inspiring them with stories is a great way to do this. It can also, even if you are not lobbying at all, you know, if you place a good story in the media, it might get policymakers to take a certain action that you want them to take. Um, so that's really important. Storytelling can actually help your clients more easily understand information. People understand information from people they relate to. And so telling stories and having your clients tell their stories can actually be a very powerful tool for your legal representation. Um, telling stories actually really empowers your clients. It lets them share their experiences and speak their truth. Um, something I always say when I'm talking about storytelling is that somewhere along the line, your client wasn't believed. Someone thought they weren't a good parent. Someone thought they weren't deserving of a job. Someone thought that they shouldn't be getting public benefits. Somewhere along the line, someone didn't believe your client and you helped that client. So when you let the client tell their story, you're really empowering them and you're telling them, I believe in you and other people are gonna believe in you too. So I think that is incredibly important. Um, and finally, you can really like combat stereotypes and correct the record about your clients when you're sharing stories. 
So that's just very quickly, you know, why you should be sharing stories. I hope that you are doing this in your fundraising, in your advocacy efforts, in your client education materials. I hope that you are doing storytelling. Um, and I hope you do after this webinar. And we're going to talk just a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you need to consider first. So the first thing is that you should absolutely have a consent form that your client signs before you share their story. Ours is very simple. Um, it asks if we can share their story with the public, with policymakers, with donors, um, and they check the boxes and it asks if they can use their initials or their name. It's very simple, but you absolutely need to get written consent. You wanna make sure that your client can truly consent to communication. So what that means is, First of all, are they, are they able to sign something? Are they able to understand what they're signing? More, also very important, do they feel coerced? Do they feel like they owe you something? You know, sometimes our clients feel like they need to pay us even though we're providing free services. You know, some of them are very willing to share their stories, but I think others are feeling like they need to do it to pay you back and you wanna make sure that that's not the case. You want to prepare your client for the ramifications of telling their story. So one of the things that we always tell our clients if they're going to be in a news article is absolutely do not read the comments on that article because somebody is going to say something horrible no matter how sympathetic your client is. And so preparing your client for that is you know, a really important thing to do. You want to protect your client's privacy and the privacy of others. So for instance, if you have a client with a criminal record, you want to make sure that their name is not used or their full name is not used in a story. Um, because if they've gotten an expungement, then that can really undo the legal work that you've done. We don't want someone to be able to Google the client and find out their entire story and their entire criminal history. So you want to work with a reporter or if you are doing development work, whatever you're doing, you want to be very careful about the instances where you use a client's full name. You want to be very careful if you're going to a homeless shelter or a domestic violence shelter, um, especially if you're with a reporter and they've got a camera. Other people who are there, you know, might be very intimidated by that. They might feel unsafe. And so you need to be the one to pay attention to that and make sure that you're not bringing a reporter or you're not bringing a camera into some place where other people could be harmed by it. Um, and if you're doing, you know, if you're going to a client's home and you're taking photos or you're bringing a reporter, you know, be very careful about who else is in the photos because they may have privacy concerns or safety concerns. And so you really want to evaluate the whole situation when you're doing storytelling. You want to make sure you understand the legal implications. So can your client lose their case? Could they lose benefits or custody or something else if you share their story? So for example, if you have a housing client and they're living in inhabitable conditions, you know, you want to be really careful if you're going to do a media story about that, that if they have children living in the house, um, child welfare doesn't read the story and remove the children from the home as a result. So you want to make sure that you're paying attention to the whole picture before you are, you know, doing something. You, if you're in the middle of an active case, you want to be really careful about doing communications in case, you know, doing a media story or sharing it with your donors or something like that could cause your client to lose their case. So closed cases are much safer. You absolutely can do media around an open case. And frankly, a lot of times we find that really helpful for getting good outcomes. You just have to evaluate the whole situation.
So if your client or someone connected to your client, like a child, a spouse, someone living with them can face legal or safety problems, they're not going to be the right choice for what you're doing. So be very careful about that. Don't lose all of your funding. Uh, this is a good one. So make sure that you have an internal communications policy and you follow it. I think the really the most important thing to do here is make your communications about issues and clients, but not about bad actors. So during Medicaid expansion, we know that Governor Corbett um, had proposed policy called Healthy Pennsylvania, which would have taken health insurance away from a lot of people. We really made our communications very much about the policy and the problems with the policy and not about the governor. And that's a really good way to make sure that you're not you know, going to be overly political, which could cause you to lose funding. Um, you know, if you are able to be political, that's wonderful, but for many of us, we aren't. And so keep it about the issues and not about bad actors. And have an internal policy for who's allowed to speak to press and what they're allowed to say. Um, don't harm your legal efforts by speaking out when you should not. So if your case has a confidentiality agreement, you can't, you can't go to a reporter about it and you probably can't put it in a letter to your donors. Some people don't think of that, especially a donor letter as talking about a case, but you have to be very careful about that because you could harm your clients inadvertently. Uh, let your clients tell their own stories. So hearing from a client is much more powerful than hearing from you, and you don't want to stifle your client's voice. So if you're working with a reporter, don't speak for your client if your client can speak for themselves. They should be empowered. They should be leading the charge. Let your client be their own advocate. Prep them, support them, but make sure that they are able to tell their stories. Um, you want to find time to communicate so you can help others like your clients. So you can help you know, one person at a time, but you can help possibly hundreds or even thousands of people with a well-placed media story or sharing something in your newsletter that gets attention of a policymaker or changes you know, some part of the landscape through communications. And so, you know, that's sort of a different type of ethical consideration, but it's always good to be thinking about how many people you can help. Um, fine, it looks blue. If it's, if it's a healthy nerve, it just pops out and it's kind of blue. Um, and then for the lawyers out there, I want to point out the diligence rule which is that a lawyer should act with reasonable diligence and promptness in representing a client. So sometimes placing a media story or having your client speak out or having your client speak to other clients can be the best way to represent them. So thinking about you know, what change you can make for your client, thinking about the best way to represent them and the best way to win a case, communications may be a big part of that. So keep that in mind. Um, this is my last slide. I wrote a paper about storytelling, specifically clients with criminal records. It's very applicable to all sorts of clients. I would say especially criminal records, immigrants, domestic violence, anyone where you're thinking about privacy, this is especially important, um, but it really does apply to all types of storytelling. So uh, check out the paper if you want more information, and of course, feel free to contact me. I'm very happy to answer questions or uh, talk you through how to speak to a reporter or any way I can be helpful. Yeah, and the electrician came today. The electrician came today and we devised. Kelly, that's all I had. Caitlin? 
if, if anybody has any questions, please type them in the chat box right now. Okay. Well, seeing that there are no questions, um, the, the slides were down, uh, are in the Dropbox. If you have any questions about um, uh, Pennsylvania Voices or the messaging research, you can contact me, Christine Kirby. Uh, I put my email in the chat box and uh, I will coordinate with Caitlin and Martha and get back with you. I wanna thank everybody for participating. Uh, I hope you learned a little bit about uh, the importance of communicating and the research behind messages about civil legal aid and we thank you for your participation today. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye now.